Turn, please, to Mark in chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, I want to read, uh, beginning with verse 27. I'll read a little bit, and then we'll move on from there to another passage, but beginning with verse 27. Once you've found that, please pray with me. Father in heaven, now we come to your word and I pray that it would find its home in us, that very work which you've ordained it to do. I pray that it would do, Father, to dig deep, to expose, to expose unbelief, but also, Father, in its place, put faith, expose sin, but, Father, in its place, I pray, it would put holiness. Father, I pray that we would find great assurance here and great affection from you and for you. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 14, verse 27. says, Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he's with his disciples. Verse 27, you will fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Then verse 66. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you're a Galilean. He began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about, immediately. The rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. Then he broke down and wept. Now, we're coming in the Gospel of Mark into the portion which is known as the Passion of Christ, that is the crucifixion of Christ, that that Christ would be crucified came as no surprise to him. He came to die. He knew that his life would move to this point of death, this point of the cross. In fact, God had ordained this time of death for Jesus and and, and tells us about it in the very beginning of the scripture in Genesis in chapter 3. We read that there's going to be enmity put between the seed of the woman and the serpent, Satan. And God says that he, this one who is to come, he will crush his head, though his heel will be bruised. The crucifixion of Jesus was the the bruising of the heel. Fortunately for us, it was the crushing of the head of Satan as well. In fact, the whole Old Testament, as you read through it, points to the death of Christ Uh, For instance, even at this moment in time, the Passover had been celebrated by the Jewish people and and, and the Passover lamb was was a foreshadowing of the death of Christ, really. Because you remember that this Passover lamb was a a substitute 
And it's important for you to understand this whole notion of substitution because this Passover lamb substituted, took the place of, in Egypt, the eldest son of the Hebrew families. You remember, when the Israelites were in captivity, were enslaved in Egypt, that the time of Passover came or was instituted and this Passover lamb was killed and its blood was painted on the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over those homes that had the blood of the lamb on them and the eldest son of the Israelite families would be spared. However, in the Egyptian homes where the blood was not painted on the doorpost, where a substitute had not already died, then the eldest son in the Egyptian families were killed. And thus, you see, pointing to the death of Jesus, a substitute would come, a substitute would come and take the very place of us and those who would live under his blood would live. And the wrath of God would pass over. The angel of death in that judgment sent would pass over. But all those who hadn't been under the blood, weren't under the blood, those would be taken, those would be killed, those would be under the very wrath of God. And so the substitution principle is significant. And thus when John the Baptist came on the scene, he pointed to Jesus and he said, that's the Lamb of God. That's the substitute for us that God provides. Trust in him. This whole notion of, of the death of Christ is significant. And if you're into Latin puns, it's the crux of the matter. It's the very cross of the matter. It's the very significant aspect of all that Jesus came to do and is. And so it's important. We'll get to that next time. This time, we need to see this preliminary event, this preliminary incident, and it's so familiar to us. Most of you know it. In fact, even if you didn't grow up in the church, people know about this time, this Jesus denying denying Christ. It, it begins, of course, with, with Peter on the night that Jesus was betrayed, and Jesus says, you know, when they, when they strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. Prophecy out of Zechariah. When the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. And, of course, Peter says, not me. They might, pointing to all his friends, they might, but I won't. I'll stay with you, Jesus. Now, that really, if you've been reading the Gospel of Mark and, and looking at the people involved, that truly shouldn't surprise us that, that, that Peter would come up with something like that because Peter was very much a leader and very much saw himself as a leader. He was in the inner circle of the disciples with Peter, James, and John. They, they often had the ear and even, it seems, the heart of Jesus more so than the other disciples. In fact, it was Peter whose name was Simon, and Jesus changed his name from Simon to, to Cephas or to Peter, meaning the rock. It was Peter who not only jumped out of the boat into the water, but actually literally jumped out of the boat onto the water when Jesus was walking on the water. So he had the claim to fame that of all the disciples, of all the people in the world, he and Jesus walked on the water uh, together. It didn't end well for him, but at least it began well. And, and he's the one that when Jesus was talking to the disciples about who do people say that I am, G Peter is the one when Jesus put it to them and said, who do you say that I am, meaning who am I really? Uh, Peter was the one who said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and even though Jesus reminded Peter that he didn't come up with that on his own, that Jesus' heavenly father, that his heavenly father had given that revelation to Peter still, it was Peter who had the claim to fame. He's the one who spoke up. He's the one who knew who Jesus was. So we see Peter speaking on behalf of the 12. We see 
Peter talking the most. You see, Peter, and thus it doesn't surprise us, that Peter would jump from his chair and say, no, they might disown you, but I never will. You know what happened. They took Jesus away. And it seems that Peter loved Jesus enough that he couldn't just let him go. He had to be with him. But it seems, too, that Peter loved himself enough that he wasn't able to put himself into a situation where he would have to incur all of the costs that would go along of a, with a full public commitment to Jesus at that moment in time. And the servant girl sees Peter close by. A servant girl of the high priest sees Peter and says, you're one of them. And he says, no. She sees him again. Yes, you are. He says, no. Finally, someone in the crowd says, you have to be one of them. You talk like them. You look like them. You're a, you're a Galilean. And Peter swears curses upon himself. And he swears by God that he doesn't know Jesus. That's interesting. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke writes that at that moment in time, Jesus, he must have been before the high priest. He must have been fairly close by with Peter in the courtyard. Somehow, Luke says that Jesus looked. Crowing. He remembers the words of Jesus, and his heart is broken, and he weeps bitterly. Now, it's interesting that that may look like the end of Peter, this great betrayal, but, it, but it's not. There was a day that came after the resurrection of Jesus. Peter had seen Jesus a couple of times resurrected. We don't know what interaction really took place at that time, but, but, but he sees Jesus again, and, and it takes place on a day when Peter decides he needs to go fishing. Now, now, whether or not Peter was thinking, I guess I'm all washed up in the apostle business. I better go back to what I know, which is fishing. We're hungry. We need some money. I better be employed. And so he and some of the other disciples uh, move along, and, uh, and, and they go fishing. And they don't catch anything. And they look out from their boats, and they see a man on the beach cooking. And, and the man on the beach cooking says, throw your nets on the right side. And they do. And they catch, there must have been some nerd there, 153, somebody counted, fish, large fish. They counted them. I don't know how you do that fast, nets, but they counted 153 fish. Maybe they did it later and put that in the text. 153 fish. And it was that point in time that the apostle John looks at Peter and goes, I know who that is. This happened before. You get this sense that they're thinking, you know, there was another occasion that, that, that Peter had been fishing all night and, and Jesus finally hooks up with him in the morning and said, let's go back out fishing. And Peter reluctantly does. He says, just because you said it, I'll do it. And so, so Peter goes out with Jesus again and, and Jesus says, throw your nets over on this side. And you get this sense that Peter's thinking, I've done this. I'm the fisherman. You're the preacher. Uh, why don't we just stick to this division of labor? But he, he puts his, his, his nets out and lo and behold, he catches so many fish that when they pull them in, the boats begin to sink. Now it happens is again, they look more closely. That's Jesus cooking on the beach. Peter had stripped himself down to fish, puts his clothes back on, runs, uh, uh, swims 100 yards or so, not walking on water this time, swimming, and, and gets to the shore. The boats come up. In fact, it is Jesus. He's cooking fish. He says, get some more for everybody. So they get some more to cook for everybody. And, uh, and, and in the midst of all of this, then Jesus turns to Peter. This is in John chapter 21. You heard it just a few minutes ago. 
When they had finished eating, verse 15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? More than what? These. What are these? These these fishing boats, this fishing life. You love me more than that? Do you love me more, Peter, than you love these other guys, these other disciples? Or, Peter, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Peter always thought he did. (laughs) You know, it was on that night that he was betrayed that Jesus said, you know, the the, the sheep are going to scatter. And Peter said, not me. They will, but I won't. Why? Well, because I love you more than they do. Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter doesn't get into the comparison. He just simply says, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. I get the sense. At that moment in time, Peter's thinking, oh, but if only I had said that when that servant girl first asked me about Jesus. If only I had said to her, yes, I know him and I love him. Jesus says, feed my lambs. Verse 16, again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You get the sense that Peter's thinking, oh, if only on that second time when, when that servant girl asked me, do you know this man, do you belong to him? If only I would have said, yes, I love him. I couldn't then, but now, yes, Lord, I love you. Jesus says, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? I mean, it would hurt perhaps to think, is Jesus not believing me or did it hurt because Peter realized it was three times that I said I didn't know him. And now I'm having to rehearse all of those again. But now I'm having to say, yes, I do love you. So he goes on and he says, Lord, you know all things, which is true. You know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. You get the sense that that moment in time, Peter's restored. He thought perhaps his career as an apostle was over, that that now what would he do? He would have to go back to fishing. Well, what would be his life? But now you realize that he's restored. And Jesus is saying, no, that very first calling that I put upon you, when I said, you will not be fishers of fish, you'll be fishers of men. And now I'm calling you to be just that. And yes, I know you denied me. And yes, I know you fell. But, but now you're restored. And here's Peter restored to this position. And then as we see, as the gospel unfolds and we see on the day of Pentecost, it's Peter who's preaching that great sermon. And we see that there's a, a man who's lame by the temple gate. And it's Peter and John who, in the name of Jesus, restore this man's health to him to enable him to walk. We see that when, when, when people come against Peter, he says, no, I'm going to continue to speak in the name of Jesus. When God calls him to go to the household of Cornelius and take the gospel where nobody thought the gospel would ever go, it's Peter, and he, and he does go. He does follow. We see that he is there, restored. You get the feeling that Peter was rather like the long snapper for the New York Giants. Two bad snaps. The last one cost them the ability to go on to the next playoff game. And at the end of the game, the long snapper was interviewed and he said, you've just witnessed the end of my career. 
get the feeling that Peter thought of himself like that. He just experienced the end of my calling, the end of my vocation for Christ, because I denied him at his most vulnerable moments. But that's not what happened at all. All right. Now, what do you think would be in Peter's mind for the rest of his life out of this incident, out of this particular incident, out of this particular event? What do you think stuck with Peter out of all of this? We can only speculate, but I think at least these, number one, a great sense of gratitude. Because here he was really thinking his life perhaps was over in his relationship with Christ. Yes, Jesus had risen, but what would that really mean for Peter? How would he get over this experience of having denied Jesus in his most vulnerable points? Oh, he understood that Jesus was kind and loving and forgiving. In fact, we sang from Psalm 130, but let me read it to you. For I think this is the gratefulness that Peter knew. Out of the depths I cried to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? Here was Peter. If God kept a record, if Jesus kept a record of that of offenses against him, could Peter ever again stand after what he had done? But he said, but with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. I will wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. This tremendous gratefulness that Peter would feel that he would know. That's why, you see, it's so important when we confess our sins that we listen for the assurance that God brings. Um, we don't use this, most people don't. Uh, book of Common Prayer. I, I use it in my devotional life because I was born in the wrong century. But always when there's a prayer of confession, there's an assurance of pardon. They always go together. You should never confess sins without listening to God speak to us verses like, when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't just let your confession hang. Make sure you hear the voice of God by his word say, you're forgiven. He says he's faithful to forgive and he's just to forgive. That is, it would be unjust for God not to forgive someone who confesses their sins in the name of Christ. It would be just as unjust for God not to forgive someone who confesses their sins to him in the name of Christ as it would for the bill collector to collect two payments. That would be unjust. It would be unjust for your bill collector to collect two payments when only one is due. And since Jesus has already paid the penalty for our sins, then when we confess, God justly and faithfully and kindly forgives us justice at that point in time. Listen to this assurance of pardon. This rings my bell. It may not be. Almighty God, who doth freely pardon all who repent and turn to him, now fulfill in every contrite heart the promise of redeeming grace, remitting all our sins and cleansing us from an evil conscience 
through the perfect sacrifice of Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me break that down. Here is the one who freely pardons all who repent and turn to him. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And then it reads, Now fulfill in every contrite heart the promise of redeeming grace. That is, work in my heart, work in my guts. The knowledge, the understanding, the assurance that I've been redeemed that I really do belong to you, that there's no break at all in our fellowship. Do you understand that when a person first becomes a Christian, when you make your first confession of sin and your first affirmation of faith in Christ, something legal happens. You're forgiven your sins. You're forgiven your sins first, last, and always. In the court of God, your slate is clean and shall always be. However... In the course of our lives as we sin, while our legal standing with God doesn't change, something else changes. Our personal relationship with him is hampered, it's hindered. When my kids do wrong stuff, they don't because they're pastor's children. But my kids do wrong stuff. When they sin against me, they don't lose their status as my children no matter what's going through my mind. (laughs) And sometimes out my mouth. (laughs) But they don't. But something happens in that relationship wherein they need to restore that face-to-face affection. They need to confess their sin. And I, as their father, need to grant them assurance that they've been forgiven so that... The relationship is healed. They're always mine, but the relationship is damaged, and now it's healed. And so, in this assurance of pardon, as Jesus is facing Peter and Peter facing Jesus, something personal is happening there. Not legal. In the mind of Jesus, Peter belonged to Jesus, and that was that. But no doubt in Peter's mind, because of how he had sinned. And even no doubt in the heart of Jesus, because he had been betrayed, in a sense, by his loyal Something needed to take place, and it did. Peter, just tell me. Tell me so you can hear, so I can hear. And you get the sense, as Peter finally said, Jesus, you know all things. This wasn't for Jesus. He he knew what was in Peter's heart. He knew what the answers would be. He knew all about this. This was for Peter and their relationships, so that Peter would have an opportunity to say, Oh, Lord, I blew it back there three times. I love you, I love you, I love you. And thus, he fulfilled in Peter's contrite heart the promise of, repeat, of, of, of redeeming grace, remitting all our sins, cleansing us from an evil conscience. Now, what's an evil conscience? Well, a good conscience is a conscience that, conscience that tells you when you've sinned. An evil conscience is a conscience that says you've confessed that you're not forgiven. That. Now that I've confessed my sins, keep me from an evil conscience that will come back and accuse me and accuse me and accuse me. Let me know that I've been redeemed. And all of this, of course, through the perfect sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's Peter, I think, grateful. Peter, I think, 
humble. There's a great expression in, in Romans chapter 3, verse 27. Where Paul simply says, after he describes salvation in Christ, he says, where's the boasting? And of course, the answer, if you understand how it is that we've been saved by the blood of Christ alone, there's no boasting other than in Christ. In whom can we boast? And if you went to Peter before this incident of denial and restoration, and you said, where's the boasting? I think Peter would say, I'm the loyal one. I'm the one that won't deny Christ. I'm the one that will stick with him. I'm the one that will stay here with him. I'm the one who confessed faith first. I'm the one who walked on water. I'm the one who is, is his confidant. Even on one occasion when Jesus said that he was going to be crucified, Peter said, oh, no, you're not. I'll protect you. I get a sense that whether he would call it boasting or not, it sure would sound a bit like boasting, that here we have a rather self-confident, self-assured apostle, which is, by the way, a contradiction in terms. But I think at this point in time, you would have Peter who would say, no, 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 no. I'm just like the rest of you. I'm just like the rest of you. I know my sin, and I utterly need Christ, which is why I think that Peter could so freely write these words in his first epistle. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. I wonder if Peter ever thought, because I have, I wonder if Peter ever thought about Judas. I mean, essentially, both Judas and Peter betrayed Christ. Uh, Judas did it by admitting he knew Christ. <laughs> Peter did it by saying he didn't. But both failed the Lord. But the outcome for Judas and Peter were very different. Do you wonder if Peter wouldn't ever think of that night that he made that outlandish claim that he would stick by Jesus and Jesus said to the whole group, Satan has requested to sift you as wheat. And then he looked at Peter specifically and said, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I wonder if Peter from time to time in his grateful humility wouldn't have thought, why me? Why would I receive the special grace of Jesus singling me out and praying for me that my faith wouldn't fail? And you know what? There's no good answer for that. There's no good, well, let me give you the, the list of reasons why. It's just, it just leaves you hanging. It leaves you in awe. It leaves you worshiping. And so Peter, understanding the nature of coming to Christ, writes to these people who, like himself, for whatever reason in the mystery of God's salvation, has chosen them according to the foreknowledge of God through the sanctifying work of the Spirit that has sent the Holy Spirit out to grab them, to set them apart, and to make them special in the eyes of God for reasons unknown to us. How else would Peter feel in the midst of that? And all for the obedience to Jesus, to Jesus Christ. I think you've got a grateful humble man by this point in time. Would it be 
utterly, preacherly, opportunistic of me. You get that? To apply this to us and say, don't we deny Jesus? And I say opportunistic because that's, that's the obvious thing to say at this point, isn't it? The obvious thing to say about this passage is we're just like Peter, and we are. In fact, as I said at the offering time, uh, the difficulty isn't, not, isn't with us denying. We're supposed to deny ourselves, but the problem is we deny Christ. Sometimes more than we deny ourselves. For instance, when hatred and anger and lying and thoughts and desires of sexual immorality or greed or, or arrogance or materialism, when those things rise up in us, we're supposed to deny ourselves. Meaning, we're supposed to say to ourselves, that sinful self, I don't know you. That's what it means to deny yourself. To say, I don't know you. I'm not associated with you. That's, nope, I'm not associated with you. And to affirm, to follow Christ. To say, I don't know hatred, I know love. I don't know anger, but I know peace. I don't know sexual immorality, but I know self-control and sexual purity. I don't know selfishness, but I know giving of myself. I, I don't know lying, but I know truth. So, so to deny, Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself. That is to say, to say, I don't know you, old sinful self, that which died on the cross. I don't know you, but I know Christ. Every time we affirm our sinful self, there's a sense in which we deny Christ. Ever since, every time we say, oh, hatred, I know that. <laughs> I acknowledge hatred. That's what I'm going to be. I'm going to hate. When we acknowledge selfishness, say, yes, I acknowledge self. I know selfishness. That's who I am. We deny Christ. Now, I could make us feel really guilty about that. But I don't need to because I suspect you already do. What I need to do here, I think, is to take our attention away from that and put it onto that John chapter 21 passage when Jesus is standing with Peter. Yes, of course we know we deny Jesus. Yes, of course we regret the times when it's so obvious in the course of what we say and what we think and what we do that we've in a sense said, I don't know Jesus. I don't love Jesus. I love my sinful desires. And we know that, but understand, please, that even in the midst of that, as we come weeping before Jesus, as we come confessing the sin before him, that there is restoration. What could be worse than standing before Jesus in his human hour of need and saying, I don't know him. I don't want any Have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever had people you thought were friends of yours side with your enemies against you? How much that hurts. You understand in the human nature of Jesus the great pain of listening to Peter, even though Jesus knew Peter would do it. Understand that. And yet still, Jesus restores him lovingly. And kindly. Isaiah has a wonderful phrase about the Messiah who's to come. And he says, A bruised reed 
he will not break. A burning flax, he will not snuff out, even as he comes in justice. Now, what does that mean? It means that Jesus, the Messiah, is going to come to his own. And when he does, he can touch us, he can take us in our most vulnerable place, at that place of our greatest sin, the place of our greatest failure, just as he did Peter. Peter was a bruised reed. If you've ever been walking through the forest and walking through the whatever out there, reeds grow up, and when they get bruised, they're at their most vulnerable point. All you have to do is walk by them, and they break. All you have to do is little boys go around and just hit them, and they break. He says he can take you right there, and he can make you strong. He won't break. And a burning flax, blow out a candle. There's that little life left. It's cool. It's not hot enough to be a flame. It's smoking. You blow on it again, it's gone. Jesus is able to blow on that and cause it to burst forth into flames. Peter was a burning flax. But Jesus came and he, he would take a life. So you see, even in the midst of our greatest sin, even in the midst of our greatest failure, there's Jesus calling us back. There's Jesus forgiving us. Don't ever stop feeling that. Not only that, here's Peter, now called to go minister in the name of Christ, and as he does, he can only do that in the context of weakness, in the context of the brokenness that he's found himself in. Because you see, when Peter goes out to minister after this time and after Pentecost, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's no longer the strength of Peter but it's the strength of God in Peter that is working out God's purposes. Where is the boasting? It's only in God. And Peter would know that. He would know that to be filled, you must first be emptied. He would know to be strengthened, you must first be broken. He knows that if you're going to have joy, you must first so Peter would write in 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. He was no longer above all of these others. He would no longer lord it over them. He was no longer first among the disciples. Now he writes in general to all those shepherds out there in the flock of God and just simply says, I'm one of you. I'm not above you. I'm one of you. Because he knows how he receives his calling. He knows what empowers him. He knows what drives him. He knows. Be shepherds, he says, of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being an example to the flock. He would know that just as... The Apostle Paul would know it. For instance, when Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, in chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says this. As he talks about his ministry, he says, Not that we're competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul writes, 
but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Paul knew, Peter knew, that though he was the rock, apart from Christ, he was just clay. His rockness would be shown only as he trusted and yielded to the Holy Spirit. Only as he trusted and yielded to Christ. And all of that to show Christ. And then, of course, Paul would write of his own experience in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. He says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations. It was pretty cool to be Paul at times. He got these great revelations nobody else got. And then he could stand up in front of people and tell them all about the mysteries of grace, the mysteries of God. So it's to keep me from becoming conceited. That would be a pretty heady thing. Because of these surpassing great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected, is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast, says Paul, all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Peter would know that. Yes, he would be grateful for his own salvation. He would be humble before God and others. And now he would be fit to really minister. Now he'd be fit to really serve God. Others. When I interview men who want to be pastors, I always say, tell me about your greatest failure and how has that shaped your life. I don't want to hear about their successes. <laughs> Who's been really successful in this work? I want to hear about how their failures have, have shaped their life. My own failures have shaped much more than anything else. Because it's only when you've been emptied that you can be filled. It's only when you've been broken that you can become strong. It's only when you've wept that you can know joy. Peter writes this. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The proud stands before God and even says, God, I know what you want me to do. Just watch. This is for you. I'll do this. And God says, no, you're not getting it. You can't do what I've called you to do. Can you raise the dead? Can you minister in my name? Can you be loving as I've called you to be loving? Can you be forgiving as I've called you to be forgiving? Can you be gracious as I've called you to do that? Can you be kind? Can you be the person I've called you to be without me? What do you mean? Just watch God. And that's the proud person. And they receive no empowering grace. But the humble person says, God, I see it. I see what you've called me to do. I've seen what you've called, who you've called me to be as a husband, as a father, as a Christian, as a believer, as one who loves another. I've seen that. I, I know what that means to some measure. And I see my weakness and my inability. And God says, great. That's exactly what I want you to be. When David was in front of Goliath, he didn't say, I'm big enough for this task. He said, you're in trouble because you're facing God. God, gives, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, 
under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Peter would know that. Peter. Be self-controlled, he said, and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. And he ends with this great benediction. And the God of all grace, he would know that. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. How can we not love him? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the great restorer. And I do pray, even though our sin flashes before us, we see it and we hear it and feel it. But even so, a much greater voice would enable us to deny ourselves and to affirm that which is true from you, that you are the one who is faithful and just to forgive, that you are the one who calls and restores. And Father, that every point of weakness would be turned around and would be a point of strength because we realize our need for you and we cast all of our cares upon you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. If you do, I remind you that there are elders available to pray. Excuse me. And I I remind you, too, that the response to the benediction is, Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah. So please, before I lose my voice, please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory, even after you've suffered a little while, He himself will restore you, will strengthen you, will cause you to be firm and steadfast. For he is the God of all power. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah.